Well, welcome back uh, from lunch. Uh, for those of you uh, just joining us, uh, welcome to Cato's 14th Annual Constitution Day Symposium. Uh, having uh, canvassed executive um, overreach in the uh, last uh, panel, um, we're turning now to uh, three of the court's uh, most important civil rights decisions last term, starting with the landmark case of Obergefell v. Uh, Hodges, which found it, um, that it, if statutes license, recognize, and afford benefits for opposite-sex marriages, they must do the same for same-sex marriages. We're fortunate to have with us today a man who's, um, uh, who's uh, been instrumental over the years in bringing that result about. Uh, William Eskridge uh, was the principal author of Cato's successful brief in the court's 2003 decision in Lawrence v. Texas, which the court twice cited. And again this year, Bill was the main author, along with our Simon lecturer today, uh, Professor Stephen Calabrese, of our winning brief in Obergefell v. Hodges. Uh, so it's uh, with great pleasure that I welcome him to our panel today. Uh, Bill is the John uh, A. Garver Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School. His primary legal academic interest has been statutory interpretation. Together with um, Philip Fricke, uh, Bill developed uh, an innovative casebook on legislation. His field-establishing casebook, three monographs, and dozens of law review articles have articulated a legal and political framework for proper uh, state treatment of sexual and gender uh, minorities. Uh, Bill's most recent books include Dishonorable Passions, uh, Passions, Sodomy Laws in America, 1861 to 2003, and with John Farajan, uh, A Republic of Statutes, Our New American Constitution. Bill is a graduate of Davidson College. Uh, he has an MA in history from Harvard, and his law degree is from Yale. Please welcome Professor William Eskridge. Thank you, Roger. It's a great pleasure to talk about Obergefell with uh, Ilya Shapiro and Roger uh, in attendance. Uh, we won the case, um, but the case raises many mysteries. And what my article for the Cato Review explores is what's the constitutional theory uh, that Obergefell rests on? What are the missed opportunities? And what does this tell you about constitutional theories generally? And I want to talk about three theories. You can talk about others, but. Uh, there are three that are most obvious. Uh, our brief uh, emphasized the original meaning of the 14th Amendment adopted in 1868. Uh, the majority opinion, while not utterly ahistorical, uh, did miss an opportunity to ground this very landmark holding on original meaning. Uh, it's a mistake, perhaps uh, repeating the mistakes made by Chief Justice Warren in a number of landmark decisions in the 1950s and 60s, such as Brown versus Board of Education, et cetera. Uh, and so following the Warren tradition, uh, Justice Kennedy uh, rested his opinion on the fundamental right to marry. Uh, the logic is pretty obvious. Uh, the fundamental right to marry, extending to all adult Americans, uh, has been denied by the four states in Obergefell, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Uh, and the state uh, has got to show some kind of compelling state interest narrowly served by excluding these couples from the institution. Um, but he misses the opportunity to think about uh, what the original meaning of the 14th Amendment had to say about something like a fundamental right to marry. Uh, Stephen Calabresi uh, and a series of co-authors have demonstrated 
that in 1868, most state constitutions uh, recognized a fundamental right to marry. Uh, and in 1868, the 14th Amendment sought to constitutionalize the protections uh, for freedom of contract in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, uh, which Calabresi and his co-authors argue surely includes the fundamental right to enter into a marriage contract respected by the states. Uh, Justice Kennedy mentions uh, none of this. Uh, the dissenters, too anyway, uh, Justices Thomas and Scalia, uh, do make original meaning arguments. Uh, Justice Thomas uh, offers a narrower understanding of liberty, which is the basis for Justice Kennedy's opinion, the fundamental right to marry filtered through due process liberty. Uh, Thomas objects to the substantive due process reading of the due process clause that the court is engaged in for about 100 years. Um, but more importantly, Thomas argues, uh, as does Scalia in his separate dissenting opinion, uh, that marriage is not essentially a libertarian institution. He argues that you give up rights when you get married, uh, and therefore uh, marriage does not fit within the traditional, say, Blackstonian understanding of liberty that the framers might have had. Uh, now, it seems to me, and Justice Kennedy does largely uh, allow this objection to go unanswered. And again, I think he could have, though he did not, uh, draw significantly on the original meaning of not only the uh, Equal Protection Clause, but also the Due Process Clause, 1791 in the Fifth Amendment, 1868 in the 14th Amendment. Because the Due Process Clause tradition actually gives Justice Kennedy his analytical answer to the dissenters. Uh, that what the Due Process Clause originally meant, Thomas start, talks about the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta as understood in the 17th and 18th centuries by Anglo-American theorists uh, meant uh, that the government had a duty, a Hobbesian, Lockean duty, to provide a structure of law applicable to everybody. So the Due Process Clause itself embodied, if they didn't call it a non-discrimination tradition, uh, a rule of law for all traditions. Uh, and one way of understanding liberty from an original meaning stance uh, is that uh, if the government provides a framework for structuring your family and personal relationships, i.e. marriage, uh, the government presumptively provides that framework available to everybody uh, and not just to a special class or not just going out to exclude a special class. Uh, now, as, as we argued, uh, Justice Kennedy also had a powerful positive basis for making uh, his constitutional argument uh, in favor of marriage equality for LGBT people and couples, and that's the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, and as we document, from a point of view of original public meaning in 1868, equal protection, which is new language in the Constitution, unlike due process, uh, had a discernible original public meaning from the Jacksonian era on through the conscience Whigs, the Republicans, and other opponents of slavery into the 50s and the 1860s, culminating in the clause. And that original meaning was the state is debarred uh, from creating class legislation or caste legislation, as the language is sometimes used, that either privileges uh, a certain class without uh, being in the public interest or excludes a certain class systematically. Uh, and Michigan, take that as an example, had done exactly that in its regime. 
It not only said that LGBT people didn't get to marry, it also excluded civil unions in their state constitution, and as aggressively interpreted by the state Supreme Court, it also said that LGBT couples did not have contract rights bargained by their union to health insurance for their domestic partners. Uh, and when the civil service tried to negotiate around that, the legislature rebuffed them and reaffirmed the discrimination. Uh, so this uh, reading of the Equal Protection Clause fit the plaintiff's case like a hand in a glove and not O.J. Simpson's hand in that glove. Uh, so we believe original meaning is an attractive normative theory, uh, but it's not a descriptive theory that was adopted by the court in Obergefell, uh, which frankly lends fuel to the critics who say that original meaning uh, is a theory uh, that is like looking out over the crowd and picking out your friends. Uh, the justices use it willy-nilly. Uh, Justice Thomas overlooks the main original meaning arguments, and Justice Kennedy ignores them altogether. So what are they doing in Obergefell? What they're doing in Obergefell, and, and we argued these cases as well, uh, is what is called common law constitutionalism. What is common law constitutionalism? Constitution is a broad, very old document. A lot of the open textured terms like due process and equal protection, their details have basically been filled in by case-by-case -case adjudication with whatever kind of legal power and even legitimacy that you can get from a common law system. Uh, and the debate between Justice Kennedy and the primary dissenting opinion by Chief Justice Roberts is basically a debate over precedent, how to read the court's family precedents, its right to marry precedents, ranging from Maynard versus Hill in the 19th century through Loving versus Virginia, the miscegenation case in 1967, to the much later case of Turner versus Safely, which said that prisoners have a constitutional right to marriage as well. Uh, and each of the justices works the cases. Um, Justice Kennedy uh, obviously relies on Loving versus Virginia, Turner versus Safely, Griswold versus Connecticut, et cetera. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts objects that these cases are not on point because they involved procreation as an essential element to thinking about marriage by those justices. Uh, each of the justices uh, engages in this common law reasoning, and in the process, each justice exposes the traditional criticisms that have been made about common law reasoning in generally and common law reasoning in constitutional cases in particular. Number one, uh, each justice picks out from the crowd his friends. Uh, justice Kennedy uh, emphasizes Griswold, Loving, and Turner. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts emphasizes the traditional substantive due process cases, which talk about tradition. Uh, each justice recharacterizes cases to suit their arguments. So Loving versus Virginia, which is a case about white supremacy very fundamentally, uh, Justice Kennedy transforms it into a case about individual marriage, uh, and Justice Thomas in dissent transforms it into a case about liberty. <laughs> Uh, and then each one engages uh, in what Yale English professor uh, Blum called creative misreading. Uh, and that is to make their positive cases, each one of the justices creatively misreads the precedents like Loving versus Virginia uh, to fit what they're trying to do. Uh, Justice Kennedy in particular, the central part of his opinion and probably the most powerful part, is when he says, very interestingly, what we learn from the cases uh, going back all the way to Maynard, is there are four values of marriage as an institution, and they all fit well lesbian and gay couples today. 
Uh, there's an individual value, individual happiness and freedom. Marriage is a unique association. Uh, it helps children, that's number three. And it's good for society, that's number four. Uh, and Kennedy gets bollocksed up over the shifting nature of the precedents. And this is a problem. So for example, Kennedy's emphasis on individual marriage, marriage as an individual choice, as a liberty, is pretty well reflected in the cases he cites for individual freedom and happiness and unique association. Cases like Griswold versus Connecticut, Turner versus Safely, where prisoners get this happiness that comes from marriage. But the cases he cites for this is good for children and great for society are almost all these old cases like Maynard in the 19th century, Pierce and Myers in the 1920s, which are explicitly premised upon the idea of traditional marriage. Uh, that procreative marriage between a man and a woman produces this idea of responsibility, self-sacrifice, Hegel's idea that the good husband is the good citizen. That's all premised upon the vision of marriage and recharacterization that Justice Kennedy is explicitly attacking. So precedent not only is cherry-picked, but precedent also is garbled in the process of retelling. So here's the difficulty with common law constitutionalism, and Obergefell is perhaps exhibit A for that. Uh, and that is that what it really is, is Obergefell is a modernizing common law constitutionalism. Uh, and you can ask yourself the question, if this is what the court is doing, is it legitimate? And that's the main punchline of Chief Justice Roberts's uh, heartfelt dissenting opinion. He argues this is simply Lochner all over again. Uh, and to which Justice Kennedy says, thank you. Uh, he might rather like Lochner uh, for all we can gather. But it raises a serious normative objection. Chief Justice Roberts says, who are we? Who do we think we are uh, to be engaging in this big movement? Uh, now, there's a third theory that's explicitly discussed by Justice Kennedy anyway that might go a little way toward answering the question. Though remember, the preferred answer is original meaning, which Justice Kennedy could usefully have invoked at that point, but does not. So a third kind of constitutional theory is what I would call deliberation-based theories. Uh, Justice Kennedy explicitly invokes the idea of a national conversation. Uh, you might be thinking, well, what is going on here? The premise of deliberation-based theories, uh, Bickel of my law school is probably the parent of all of this. Uh, the premise is that we live in a constitutional democracy, uh, but that uh, presides over a, a pluralist uh, group uh, and society. So we're a nation of groups and we're a nation of social movements. Uh, and the constitutional structure that we have understood this, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, the divisive groups of the 1780s and 90s, many of them are religious groups. Uh, and so we establish a pluralist protecting system that the state cannot say one group is superior and can't persecute other groups, other little groups. Uh, and I think the 14th Amendment simply iterates that compromise and that structure, but more broadly, without the explicit focus on religion. Uh, and so liberty, for example, the great use of liberty in the Constitution, which I think is the original meaning of liberty, uh, is that the despised as well as the mainstream people and groups 
get certain basic libertarian protections the government cannot take away from you. Uh, the equality norm in the Equal Protection Clause uh, creates a process by which groups that are trying to integrate into the polity uh, through a slow process uh, have an instrument that they can use against blatant discrimination. Now, how does this work? And I think that's one way of reading structurally the 14th Amendment. I think that way of reading the 14th Amendment is also consistent with Charles Sumner, uh, the radical Republicans, the language as well as the deliberations that gave us the 14th Amendment in 1868. Uh, what role do courts play? Well, one role that courts play, and we've seen these in the gay rights cases in the last 20 years, uh, is that courts can reverse the burden of inertia. Uh, if there has been a liberty deprivation, uh, and uh, most legislatures have swept it away, uh, but not all have, uh, and it goes to, in Lawrence, remember, was the sodomy law case, not just a possible criminal prosecution against people for consensual private conduct, but also basically an outlaw status, which is the way Texas was using its homosexual sodomy laws against gay people. And in Lawrence, the court said, no, uh, that is not admissible under the Constitution. Uh, that could have been overridden by a constitutional amendment and perhaps other ways, uh, but uh, virtually no one objected very strongly to what the court did in Lawrence. Uh, a second uh, role of the courts is to uh, uh, police, monitor, and expunge outlaw, outlier statutes that seem mean-spirited uh, and exceptional. Kennedy's opinion in Romer and Evans in 1996, striking down Colorado's Amendment 2, which seemed to target lesbian and gay people for exclusion from normal civil abilities, uh, was an example of that. And maybe the DOMA opinion, too, Windsor in 2013 where Cato also filed a successful brief. Uh, DOMA is possibly the most aggressively anti-gay law ever passed in the history of human civilization. It was a very unusual law that the court struck down. Uh, now, what they did in Obergefell is somewhat different. We're not talking about spite here. Uh, and we're not talking about outliers here, though certainly the number of states that discriminated against same-sex couples had been radically diminished by the time we got to June 26, 2015. It had been diminished in part because lower federal courts had struck them down the year before. So it was not an outlier uh, example either. And this is what's controversial, and perhaps properly so. So I leave you with this thought. A third role of the court under a pluralism facilitating understanding of the Constitution, uh, and this is exactly Kennedy's point explicitly in the opinion, um, is that when the, the national normative conversation has more or less run out, that the opponents of marriage equality have basically run out of arguments, uh, and enough states have experimented with the uh, non-discriminatory regime that we're pretty sure it's not going to have the bad effects claimed by the opponents, uh, then the court uh, brings the conversation to a close uh, at some point. Now, when that should be, open to some kind of dispute. Uh, and that's, I think, basically what the court did in Obergefell. Now, you still have the Kim Davises. Uh, and most importantly, and then this is also what Kennedy is up to in his opinion, uh, you now are bequeathed new constitutional disputes, which are being termed these liberty equality disputes between does equal rights for LGBT people and couples mean fewer rights of the liberty nature 
for uh, supporters of traditional uh, religious values. Uh, I think it's a very important debate. Kennedy gestures toward it. And remember, Kennedy was the fifth vote in Dale versus Boy Scouts, a libertarian decision, saying that the Boy Scouts have a constitutional right not to uh, integrate their assistant scoutmasters in pursuant to a non-discrimination law. Uh, and I think Kennedy will probably remain a liberty vote uh, along those lines, as he was in Obergefell, uh, et cetera, uh, et cetera. Um, but, but, but on the other hand, Justice Alito uh, says in his dissent uh, that after Obergefell, uh, supporters of traditional marriage, he said his language will be vilified. Uh, and Justice Alito uh, has hit the nail with his head. He's quite right. <clears throat> that there will be after Obergefell. Because of Obergefell, no, not so much, but because of social norms that strongly support what the court did in Obergefell, there will be normative pressure, uh, not from the government, let's say, but from within religious traditions. And we've seen this, and I've participated in this with the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, uh, which just a few months ago dramatically supported a sweeping non-discrimination law for sexual and gender minorities in Oregon and Utah uh, in the areas of housing and employment with, to be sure, generous religious allowances, including for the Boy Scouts, uh, but still a very monumental achievement there which reflects a dramatic change in the thinking of one of the nation's most thoughtful and conservative and traditionalist religions. And my prediction is that Obergefell is going to continue to have ripple effects along those lines, which is going to complexify as well as deepen the liberty equality clashes. Thank you, Roger. Well, thank you, Bill, for that look back and also ahead with the cases that are coming up after Obergefell. Uh, we're going to turn now to um, a decision that didn't, unlike Obergefell, go as we had hoped. This is a mouthful, Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs, the, the Inclusive Communities Project. The question there was whether so-called disparate impact claims were allowed under the 1968 Fair Housing Act. The court held that they were, Justice Anthony Kennedy writing for himself in the court's four liberals, to discuss the decision here, too, we're fortunate to have a man with a long and distinguished record of work in the area of civil rights, Roger Clegg, President and General Counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity, which with Cato and several other organizations filed a brief on the losing side of this case. Roger's work has focused especially on the regulatory impact of civil rights laws on business and the problems in higher education created by affirmative action. A former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Reagan and Bush I administrations, he held the high, second highest positions in both the Civil Rights Division and the Environment and Natural Resources Divisions of DOJ. He has held several other positions at the Justice Department, including Assistant to the Solicitor General, Associate Deputy Attorney General, and Acting Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Policy. Like Bill, Roger, too, is a product of the Yale Law School. Please welcome Roger Clegg. Thank you very much, Roger, for that, that nice introduction and, and uh, for 
inviting me to speak today and also for the opportunity to write about this case in uh, Cato's uh, Law Review. My remarks today are uh, going to track what I have to say in that article. Let me give you a little bit of a, a roadmap before I get started. Uh, I'm going to begin by talking about the, the uh, decision by the Supreme Court in the, in the Texas case, the issue in it, uh, the decision itself, and then uh, while it's true, as Roger says, that this decision did not come out the way we wanted it to, there are some silver linings in it, which I'm going to, to talk about. Uh, then I'm going to discuss what is to be done going forward, both in terms of, of litigation uh, and also some possible legislation that I think should be passed. And then finally, um, I'm going to elaborate on what the problems with the disparate impact approach to civil rights enforcement are. Uh, I saved that section for last because I tend to become very emotional uh, in, in talking about it. I will probably start foaming at the mouth. Uh, Roger, when my 15 minutes are up, if you would use uh, that uh, tranquilizer dart that I gave me to shoot me in the neck, uh, I think that would probably be the best way to, to get me to, to stop. Um, it will also, uh, uh, I think, makes it necessary, since I don't know when I will come to, that I should say for the record now that I do not agree with uh, my, uh, with Cato and uh, my co-panelists on the uh, outcome in the same-sex marriage case. However, uh, we'll save that for the, uh, for the discussion afterwards. Um, as Roger said, the issue in the, uh, in the Texas case, I'm just going to refer to it as the Texas case since it is a mouthful, um, is whether disparate impact causes of action can be brought under the Fair Housing Act. Um, now, what is a disparate impact cause of action? Well, uh, there are basically two kinds of lawsuits uh, that can be brought uh, in, in civil rights, uh, uh, under civil rights statutes. There are disparate treatment cases and there are disparate impact cases. Uh, a disparate treatment case is the sort of lawsuit that most normal sane people would, would have in mind. Uh, if, if you ask somebody what is racial discrimination, they would say, well, racial discrimination is when you treat somebody differently because of their race. Uh, you know, you, you do something to them or you uh, treat them somehow differently um, because of their, of their skin color. Uh, and if you said to that person, well, suppose that, for instance, a, a landlord had a policy of um, not renting to African-Americans, would that be disparate treatment? And they would say, well, sure, that's, that's discrimination, that's disparate treatment. And then if you ask that person, well, what if, you, what if that landlord said that uh, I'm not going to rent to people who have a record of uh, committing violent crimes? Um, would that be racial discrimination? And the normal sane person would say, well, no, that's not racial discrimination. And then if you were to say that, well, but suppose that uh, in that particular neck of the woods, 
the people who had been convicted of violent crimes were disproportionately of this or that racial group or religious group. I mean, suppose that there are, you know, bands of marauding Buddhists, uh, you know, in, in that neighborhood. Uh, or uh, marauding feminists, uh, or, or something like that, uh, would, would a, uh, a policy of not renting to violent criminals uh, be discrimination on the basis of race or religion or, or sex? Um, and the person would say no. Um, and uh, if, you, if you said that, well, um, uh, suppose that there was, uh, to elaborate on that, that not only does the policy not discriminate on the basis of uh, race or ethnicity or, or, or religion or sex on its face, but there was no discriminatory intent. That is, that the reason the landlord adopted the policy was because they found that running to uh, violent felons was uh, bad, got, uh, was something that other tenants objected to, uh, it was bad for business for a variety of reasons. Um, and suppose that this law was uh, applied even-handedly. Uh, it wasn't some subterfuge that was uh, uh, invoked only against this or that racial group. Uh, it was applied even-handedly. Well, uh, the person would say, well, yes, all the more. Uh, those, those, those make it sound like it's perfectly correct to say that this was not racial discrimination. Well. Under the disparate impact approach, none of that matters, okay? If you have the kind of disproportion that I outlined before, if the policy has a disproportionate effect on the basis of race or ethnicity or religion or sex, that is all you need to show in order to prove racial discrimination. If the defendant proves that he had no racial motive, if he proves that this law has been applied even-handedly to everyone, uh, it doesn't matter. The only way that he can win this kind of a lawsuit is to show some degree of necessity for the policy. Okay? Uh, the fact that people are not being treated differently because of race or ethnicity or religion or sex just doesn't matter. Okay, so that is the issue in the, uh, in the Texas case. Did the Fair Housing Act allow those kinds of lawsuits, the kinds of lawsuits that I just uh, outlined with respect to this, this landlord's policy? The Supreme Court's decision, unfortunately, was five to four that, yes, those kinds of lawsuits may be brought. It is okay to, to bring disparate impact lawsuits uh, that make no allegation of actual disparate treatment on the basis of uh, any of these, these factors. Uh, as I said, this very you know, unfortunate outcome. Um, however, there are some, some silver linings to it. Uh, the decision was written by Justice Kennedy, and I think that in his heart of hearts, uh, Justice Kennedy could see that there are a lot of problems, you know, with this approach, and I'll elaborate uh, on, on some of those problems later on. So what he did in the opinion uh, was to begin by saying that, okay, plaintiffs win. Uh, however, uh, I'm going to 
put out some limits on the kinds of lawsuits that we're going to recognize. I'm going to set out the requirements uh, that plaintiffs have to meet in order to win these lawsuits. I'm going to clarify the way that defendants can win these lawsuits even if a prima facie case has been, been made out. The net result is that while this was a very disappointing decision, um, the law is actually better now than it was before. Uh, one reason that's true is because, unfortunately, the courts of appeals had all gone in the wrong direction, uh, and the Obama administration has been very aggressive in using this approach. So it didn't take very much to make the law better. It was already very bad. Um, but one reason that the law is actually better is because Justice Kennedy does set out these, uh, these uh, silver linings that, that I that I uh, describe in more detail in, in the article. Well, what this means is that there is reason for hope going forward in terms of both litigation and legislation. In terms of legislation, um, you know, we now have a situation where not only are the problems with disparate impact lawsuits obvious, uh, but they've been recognized not just by the conservative justices, but by all nine justices. You know, the, five, the four liberals joined Justice Kennedy uh, and, of course, the, the conservatives dissented. And every, so everybody recognizes that there are problems with the disparate impact approach. And it would be great if Congress at some point would, would step up to the plate and uh, clarify or cut back uh, the kinds of disparate impact lawsuits that, that can be brought. Uh, now, of course, those lawsuits or those kind, that kind of legislation uh, will not get very far during the Obama administration, but perhaps they will be signed into law during the Trump administration. Um, the other possibility uh, in, in the meantime uh, is to continue litigating these, these cases. Um, even under the Fair Housing Act, as I said, I think that there is some good case law to be made. And indeed, there've already been, there's already been at least one good lower court decision uh, interpreting uh, the Texas case under the Fair Housing Act. Uh, there are other statutes out there where it uh, remains unresolved by the Supreme Court whether you can bring disparate impact causes of action, such as the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Uh, so those uh, challenges should continue to be brought. Even in instances where uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Congress did put a disparate impact cause of action into the statute, uh, this decision provides ammunition for trying to limit the kinds of lawsuits that can be brought. Uh, I talk about that also in the article, for instance, under the Voting Rights Act. And then finally, another kind of lawsuit that can, can be brought is against uh, federal regulations that use the disparate impact approach, even though the Supreme Court has said explicitly that the underlying statute does not allow uh, disparate impact causes of action. I'm speaking of, of Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which uh, is used by the Obama administration to challenge all kinds of policies, uh, for instance, in school discipline policies uh, uh, that, that have a disproportionate racial impact. So anyway, there's, there's, there's plenty of good lawsuits to, to be brought. OK, so now I'm going to start the, the fulminating part. Um, Roger, you don't actually have to shoot me with a dart, but uh, you know, give me a, a nudge or something when I uh, 
get. Uh, uh, five minutes to five. Okay, good. I, that, that, that should that should be uh, allow me to work up a good good lather here. Um, the as you would imagine, uh, you know, when, when when you think about it, if you can bring a a cause of action that require that 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 requires only that you show a racial disproportion, this has a lot of obvious and immediate problems. You are going to be encouraging defendants to get their numbers right. I mean, if you have, for instance, uh, an employer uh, who um, wants to require his employees to meet some uh, minimum level of qualifications, if those minimum level of qualifications have a disproportionate impact, um, he knows he's, op he's opening himself up to a lawsuit. So what he will do is try to uh, avoid lawsuits by hiring according to the numbers. Uh, in other words, what the disparate impact approach does is encourage uh, potential defendants to do exactly what the civil rights laws say you're not supposed to do, which is to consider race and ethnicity and so forth uh, in your decision making. Uh, the alternative uh, is for the employer to uh, jettison perfectly valid um, qualifications uh, and, may, and, and hire less productive employees. So both of the, the, the possible outcomes are, uh, are very unfortunate here. You're actually encouraging employers to make decisions based on color of skin rather than content of character, uh, which is a very odd thing for a civil rights statute to do. Any selection device is going to have a disparate impact on someone. Uh, so the potential for some kind of, of, of mischief is, uh, uh, is, is omnipresent. It's frequently asserted that, well, you know, we have to have the disparate impact approach because it's very difficult to prove actual disparate treatment. Uh, that is not true. Uh, you know, I was in the Civil Rights Division for a long time. We brought and won lots of disparate treatment cases. And in fact, even under the Obama administration, uh, if you look at the uh, lawsuits that it brings and wins, most of them are disparate treatment cases. Right after the Texas decision came in, uh, came, came down, uh, they announced a couple of settlements um, under the Fair Housing Act that involved disparate treatment. Uh, so it's, it's simply not true that you have to uh, use the, the disparate impact uh, approach in order to, to stop actual discrimination. Um, the, uh, Race-based decision-making that the disparate impact approach encourages is um, extremely unfortunate. Really, when you think about it, if you have racial disparities uh, uh, in, for example, the qualifications that, that people have to, to get into a university or to, or to get a job, there are three things you can do about it. Uh, you can... Uh, ignore those disparities uh, by superimposing over them uh, a system of racial preferences, which is what a lot of universities do. Uh, or you can attack the standards themselves 
which is what the disparate impact uh, approach does. The third possibility is to do something about those disparities in the first place. You know, figure out why it is that a disproportionate number uh, of, of uh, Americans uh, uh, are not graduating from high school uh, with the skills that are necessary or are committing a lot of crimes. Do something about the fact that, for example, 72% uh, of African Americans are born out of wedlock, which is what leads to all these disparities. But of course, that kind of exercise is an exercise that holds no interest for the left. Thanks very much. Thank you, Roger. Uh, we're going to turn now to an issue that will not soon go away, if ever it does, especially after Obergefell, as uh, Bill suggested, and that's um, religious accommodation. Although the case before us here does not concern same-sex marriage. Rather, it's workplace attire and whether an employer can be held liable under Title VII of the 64 Civil Rights Act for refusing to hire an applicant based on a religious practice if the employer didn't have direct knowledge that a religious accommodation was required. Or put differently, must an employer inquire into an individual's religious preferences in order to provide accommodations? Apparently so, or so the court seemed to rule, and so the case went back to the Tenth Circuit where it was then settled. Here to discuss this complex case is yet another Yale man, Cato's own Walter Olson. Wally is a senior fellow with our Center for Constitutional Studies and a man able to well handle a wide range of legal issues despite not being a lawyer, or perhaps because of that, because he writes in a style that even lawyers can understand. Prior to joining Cato, Wally was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's been a columnist for Great Britain's Times Online, as well as Reason Magazine, and his writing appears regularly in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the New York Post. On the web, he founded and continues to run Overlawyer.com, widely cited as the oldest blog on law, as well as one of the most popular. His books include The Litigation Explosion, The Excuse Factor, The Rule of Lawyers, and most recently, Schools for Misrule, Legal Academia, and an Overlawyered America. Please welcome Cato's own Walter Olson. Thank you, Roger. Can you hear me? Am I loud enough? Um, EEOC versus Abercrombie and Fitch uh, was best known for, as, as far as one-liners go, for the comment that uh, Justice Scalia ad-libbed as he uh, entered the court to read his majority opinion for all but one justice. He said, this is really easy. And the case, in fact, as it went up through the three levels of review uh, had separated judges into five different camps, none of which agreed with each other. Uh, the EEOC had changed the theory on which it won the case partway through. Uh, <clears throat> to win, the EEOC had to repudiate 20 years worth of its own guidance and all of its own previous legal positions. And I think it's testimony to what uh, Justice Scalia's tolerance for complication is that uh, he could find it a really easy case. Uh, when Ilya Shapiro asked me to write about this one for uh, the Cato Supreme Court review, I thought, oh, good, I got the uncontroversial subject, religious accommodation in the workplace. Um, and yet there's a paradox in that. The, 
Abercrombie case was surprisingly uncontroversial, and it began to seem a mystery to me why it was so uncontroversial and why people were not getting more upset about it. After all, almost every well-known religious accommodation in the workplace case before and since in recent years has had people screaming at each other at the top of their lungs. Uh, you may remember the Hobby Lobby case, the controversies over the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts in Arizona and Indiana, and many, many others. And the Abercrombie case, you would think, would make for an especially what I think reporters call combustible mix, because it has stereotyping, uh, it has Islam, it has the exposure of women's bodies to the male gaze, uh, and yet people did not scream at each other. The winds were calm. Uh, as Sherlock Holmes might have put it, the dog didn't bark, or in this case, the talk shows didn't bark. Um, and as I investigated, I, you know, there were some obvious reasons that didn't really satisfy. For example, the, uh, the stakes were very low, unusually low. Uh, she had won a small jury verdict. Uh, Abercrombie and Fitch had already changed its policy and was allowing headdresses happily by the time the court he heard the case. So the stakes were about as low as they could possibly be for the parties, and yet uh, that doesn't keep people from screaming at each other. Uh, it's also true that most of the commentary, commentary didn't really understand what the court was ruling on. Usually people thought the court was going to rule whether or not it should have to hire her. Uh, instead, as Roger well described, uh, the case that uh, the, the issue that brought it up to the court was the uh, much more precise one of whether Abercrombie had been put on enough notice that she needed uh, one. And yet, as we all know, misunderstandings of what Supreme Court cases are about just encourage commentators out there. Uh, they, they are grist for the talk shows to take even more of an interest. So I wasn't satisfied by that either. Let me take a couple of minutes to discuss the legal issues as they arose. Samantha Eloff came into uh, the Abercrombie and Fitch kids store in Tulsa and uh, was uh, interested in working there, uh, but she was interested in working there with her headscarf, which she wore constantly uh, as a devout Muslim. And the local hiring manager in the interview figured and assumed, those two words would turn out to be important, uh, that uh, she was doing it for religious reasons, and yet uh, no one ever asked and no one um, uh, informed the company uh, in a way that got to its management. Uh, it was an assumption. It, it was a guess, a correct guess. And when this reached the courts, the appeals court ruled for Abercrombie, reversing the trial court, uh, mostly on the basis of uh, a direct reading of precedent. The way that religious accommodation law is supposed to go, religion is seen as being a personal thing that doesn't have to be disclosed, and so it's up to the employee to uh, come out with it, as it were, as an issue, and inform the employer that it's um, something on which an accommodation is requested. And there, there's a lot of precedent there, not only in court decisions, but in 20 or 30 years of the EEOC's own guidance, saying that the accommodation process begins only when the employee makes it explicit that it's beginning. Well, the EEOC decided that this would be a good occasion to change the law's expectations, and they said that um, uh, explicit notice should not be enough if the company had been put on implicit operational notice by the way she dressed, the way she behaved. Uh, now, the problem here is that 
uh, EEOC's guidance is also very, very severe on stereotyping. Um, you re read your obligations as an employer about religious discrimination, and it says you must not assume. It says in so many words in all the EEOC guidance until just the other day uh, that just because someone comes in with religious garb, for example, do not assume that they are religiously devout, or vice versa. The <clears throat> so the obvious question is why not? ask if you're doubting. Well, you guessed it. There's another part of EEOC guidance that says you mustn't ask about religion. That's, <laughs> you, you will be presumed to have been acting from a discriminatory mo motive if you ask about religion or even if you ask the kind of softening up questions like, hey, could you work on weekends here? Hmm? Any problem with working on weekends? Anything like that, anything that fishes for or tries to winkle out uh, religious sentiments that might require accommodation, all of it um, strongly discouraged uh, by EEOC guidance as discriminatory evidence. So, of course, the business attitude on this case was, what is it that you want of us? EEOC um, uh, guidance had been very much the basis of how Abercrombie had proceeded through most of the stages of this case. And uh, if we're not supposed to ask, but we are supposed to know, what happens in cases that are a little less obvious uh, than this one? And when the amicus briefs came in, and that's really when I began to understand the lack of controversy, you had on Abercrombie's side some very powerful amicus briefs from two sources, the employer community, led especially by public sector em employers. Uh, this is the first of the, the distant ties with the Kim Davis case. Um, public sector employers were particularly concerned at being able to get guidance that they actually could follow and not have con contradictory marching orders from uh, the government. Uh, the only private group, so far as I could see, that filed on Abercrombie's side was the Cato Institute. Uh, and it's kind of unusual for Cato to be the only idea-oriented ori organization doing that. Meanwhile, over on the plaintiff's side, <coughs> it was amazing. You had, at, <coughs> you had some of the most liberal and some of the most conservative groups in the country, not just both on uh, Samantha Eloff's side, but even on the same brief. You had Americans United for Separation of Church and State and the Islam American Islamic Congress. You had the ACLU and some of the most conservative churches in, in the country on the same brief in some cases with each other. And that helps explain why the public discussion of it was kind of one-sided, um, which is that uh, most of the people approaching it from an ideological standpoint had decided that they were for the plaintiffs, uh, with Cato being the exception. Now, the the court's actual ruling, as I mentioned, was on a different ground than uh, everyone thought was going to be its ground. It was not about notice. It was about motivation. Uh, the uh, uh, majority of eight said that uh, failure to accommodate in this case was a disparate form of disparate treatment. That was, had not been anyone's view until um, uh, re relatively shortly before. Justice Thomas's dissent said that no, it was disparate impact, which again had not been anyone's idea. I will leave it to the employment law specialists to uh, follow up on that. You'll read about it if you read my piece, because I know you all want to get on to what, what is the Kim Davis angle in this. Um, and it does circle around, because this is, of course, one stage, one bit, uh, one episode in uh, a long history of changing legal attitudes on religious accommodation. And one of the ways in which it's fun to be a Supreme Court nerd at cocktail parties, you, you see what we have to rely on for fun, um, 
is that when the Kim Davis case or the, the RIFRA cases come up, uh, you can shock people by uh, pointing out that in 1990 there was the landmark Supreme Court case saying that the Constitution does not require uh, accom that accommodation be given to most religious uh, people when the law um, requires or, or forbids, forbids something uh, that shocks the religious conscience or, or, or requires them to violate uh, religious practice. So then you, you dare them to guess who wrote that opinion, uh, which um, uh, was so unsympathetic to religious accommodation. And then you spring on them that it was Antonin Scalia. Um, and in, indeed, that it was part of an overall evolution uh, lasting many, many years in which it was the liberals who were the great champions of doing more accommodation and the conservatives who were the great skeptics uh, saying that perhaps we ought to be enforcing uh, rules uh, even-handedly or at least not uh, invoking the Constitution to do otherwise. And during the so-called Sherbert-Yoder period that was ended by the 1990 case of Employment Division versus Smith, it was Brennan, it was Marshall, it was uh, the left wing of the court uh, that was standing up for the people whose strong religious views uh, told them that they should not be um, uh, told by their bosses to do what uh, they, they, they were being told. And, in the aftermath of Scalia's victory for a conservative court, uh, many of you know what happened next, which was that there was an outcry in favor of the danger to religious liberty, which was led by, drum roll, uh, the ACLU and the Clinton administration, saying that those wicked old conservatives uh, were not being generous enough in the amount of religious accommodation that they were allowing. We got the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, passed by a near unanimous Congress back then. And uh, imitated by uh, more than a dozen states uh, in their so-called st state rifers. And that brings us, br <clears throat> brings us up to the present day, that even today, liberals have remained the great supporters of religious accommodation and conservatives that, excuse me, I'm holding my notes upside down. Oh, oh okay, I'm sorry, it's exactly the reverse. <laughs> the, uh, somehow today, uh, the issue has completely flipped its political coloration. And if you hear someone on the radio going on about how the government is trampling people's religious uh, practice rights, that person is probably to the right of center. And if you hear someone talking about how one law ought to apply for all and, and uh, <coughs> th things will break down and become unfair if you begin giving people special lots based on uh, private religious conscience, that person is probably to the left of center. Well, what was going on in constitutional law and in areas like RIFRA during all these years was also going on in miniature in employment law because employment law has its own version of this uh, in the form of Title VII, which uh, came in in the Abercrombie case, uh, which is the requirement that uh, employers uh, offer religious accommodation to workers uh, over uh, things that violate their, their, their right to religious practice. And uh, this too, just as in the constitutional and RIFRA area, was a struggle between liberals and conservatives, which somehow or other managed to invert itself when no one was looking. Uh, for years and years, uh, the Supreme Court interpretation on workplace religious accommodation under Title VII um, was a, a matter of broad-ranging readings by liberal justices and relatively narrow skeptical readings by conservative ones, you, you had for years and years uh, a concerted effort in Congress to pass something that was called the Workplace uh, Religious Freedom Act, which would uh, greatly toughen 
private employers' requirements to accommodate their uh, their workers. Who led that legislation? Ted Kennedy, John Kerry for many years, uh, then Senator Hillary Clinton. And just as we saw with the other religious liberty issues, uh, <clears throat> somehow or other, the two parties, uh, <clears throat> both of them bathing in the river, still decided that it would be opportune to steal each other's clothes as they got dressed on the way out. And the, uh, even as Senator Rick Santorum, uh, then Representative Bobby Jindal and others, signed on enthusiastically and became some of the leading voices for the Workplace Religious Freedom Act, uh, so liberals were becoming less enthusiastic. Key moment came in 2004 when the ACLU circulated a letter saying, we've noticed something now that there's been a lot of litigation uh, over workplace religious accommodation, which is that a majority of cases are in these not too controversial areas of uh, scheduling, weekend scheduling typically, uh, garb and grooming. They said it's okay with us uh, to continue to ride herd on employers in those areas, but in the meantime, look at all the miscellaneous cases that are growing and growing and growing in, in the workload. You have truckers and emergency drivers uh, who are offering religious, religious objections to being put on male-female mixed overnight shifts. Uh, you have people who are objecting to diversity training. Uh, one of the big cases was from Hewlett-Packard when Carly Fiorina was the CEO, and a conservative uh, employee sued Hewlett-Packard saying that the diversity training that uh, Ms. Fiorina was requiring him to attend was too pro-gay. Well, he lost that, but that was one of many different cases in which it was clear that the culture wars were getting in uh, pretty rapidly. And so <clears throat> that helps explain why the liberals' enthusiasm waned, why the conservatives' enthusiasm grew. Um, <clears throat> just within the last week, we have seen the case of Sherry Stanley, who is a flight attendant suing EspressJet because she, after converting to Islam, she believes that uh, it would shock her religious conscience to serve alcohol to passengers as she goes down the aisle. And so she ought to be let out of this. She says that for a while her fellow flight attendants were agreeing to trade off as she you know, bobbed from one side to the other, serving only soft drinks. They would fill in the, uh, the, the sinful orders. And the, <clears throat> this, this this fell apart, and she now wants an EEOC ruling that she shouldn't have to serve alcohol. Uh, and what most people didn't realize when this broke, and, and this one did attract the attention of the talk shows, but two years ago, the EEOC already uh, made clear that in its view, employers must sometimes let Muslim employees out of hauling uh, out, of, out of transporting alcohol. It was in a trucking case called Star Transport, still in process, I believe. And the EEOC said that the employer had violated the law by not making more effort to accommodate Muslim truckers who didn't want to haul alcohol. So I would just close by noticing that sometimes when a case is calm, uh, when the winds are not blowing, it's because there is equal pressure on every side. The conservatives and liberals are about equally conflicted. And that may be the moment when there is a hurricane. It's just that you're in its eye, and it's not the time to relax. Thank you. Thank you, Wally. We've got less than 15 minutes, so let's go straight to questions. Uh, if you could wait for the microphone and identify yourself and any, um, any uh, affiliation that you may have. We'll start right here in the front with this gentleman with a bow tie.
Yes, my name is Ed Teriaki, and I have no affiliation. This is for Professor Eskridge. In light of your description of the ramifications of Ogrefell and the court's reasoning, are there any constitutional reasons, um, impediments now, to polygamy in America? And would you be willing to defend a case uh, litigating the right to plural marriage? Uh, the question is, uh, uh, how would the judges rule on polygamy? Well, uh, original meaning would be the most legitimate basis for a ruling, and that would probably not support uh, polygamy uh, on the whole. Um, common law constitutionalism can reach any result uh, probably that you want. Uh, and so the punchline of what I'm saying is this pluralism facilitating approach. Uh, I think what that suggests is the following. Uh, and we've already seen some cases ruling along these lines. Um, for a polyamorous relationship, which, by the way, we see now in America, okay? Um, once you've allowed sexual cohabitation uh, and basically decriminalized that, can you go out of your way to criminalize a sexual cohabitation that's polyamorous? Um, and the suggestion is this is a liberty interest that the courts are going to be skeptical of regulation, okay? Uh, so that's probably the first step, that um, the old 19th century cases which made polygamy affirmatively a crime. And by the way, this follows John Stuart Mill. Please always, re every day, reread on liberty. Uh, and Mill's view was that polygamy shouldn't be a crime, uh, but he was skeptical that polygamy should be recognized by the state. And so that question then becomes, uh, are we going to have polygamosexuals uh, as a puissant social group, okay? Uh, and the, um, you know, it's not inconceivable. V-Day, Big Love, uh, and other television programs. Uh, but it seems very unlikely at this point that we are going to have uh, a uh, social movement of polygamists. And the punchline of Obergefell, punchline of most of these cases, the Title VIII case, the EOC case, punchline of all these cases is uh, that the Supreme Court is sensitive to the balance of groups in America. Okay? And if there's no pressure from polygamosexuals uh, as a group, you're not going to see the courts uh, requiring uh, polygamous marriage. And I think Justice Kennedy thought that when he wrote Obergefell. If he had felt the next case would have been uh, a niece and a nephew, uh, or a, a niece and an aunt, or the next case would have been a polyamorous couple, he might have considered writing the opinion in a different way. But stay tuned, because that's what uh, common law is. It's elliptical, and it responds to what's going on in the country. Right. Or to paraphrase Justice Scalia, one spouse is quite enough. Who would want to? Right. Um, right. Oh, we want to have comments here? Yes. yes. Brief comments? Uh, oh, go ahead. You had it. Well, just um, briefly, I've written about this, and um, uh, two things I would point out is that an effective political movement for polygamy would need to unite the, the two constituencies that seem to favor, one of which is members of extremely conservative religions and the other of which is free love, bohemians, uh, and I, I don't see this happening. But the um, second 
point is that Justice Kennedy in particular is clearly very uh, attuned to the social science research about effects on children and effects on social institutions. He quoted that a lot in his gay rights decisions. Uh, there is a lot of literature uh, indicating that polygamy correlates with bad outcomes for children, bad outcomes for women. Um, I suspect that he would view that as, as relevant. Roger. I, well, I was going to ask uh, Professor Eskridge what in the original meaning of the 14th Amendment suggests that the framers were uh, more hostile to polygamy than they were to same-sex marriage or incest or marrying a horse or marrying a toaster? A toaster? I, uh, I, uh, do, Roger, should I answer that? Uh, sure. Uh, it seems to me... <laughs> Better you than me. No, there are two things. Uh, one, not off. Got Calabresi here. This is a Moynihan moment. Uh, he can correct me. Uh, uh, you look at the original meaning, the work that Steve Calabresi has done. Uh, in 1791 and in 1868, most state constitutions did recognize uh, a right to marry two people. And that was the public meaning uh, in 1868. Uh, so you could look at that. Uh, you could also, and this is my, my main focus, you could look at uh, the Charles Sumner, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, Ohio Constitution, pre-Civil War and Civil War meaning, original, original meaning. So original meaning is not expectations. It's the public meaning that these words have. Uh, and I would focus on, is it a caste system? Now that goes back to the answer that I actually gave. Uh, if indeed uh, we became a nation where there was a discernible minor minority of polygamosexuals uh, who were uh, productive citizens, and I like the answer, I think the social science evidence I've seen very much supports uh, your point, uh, Roger, that uh, uh, it's not very encouraging. It's misogynistic uh, on the whole, and it's probably bad for children. And that's even taking out the cases where it's open exploitation, underage people and coercion, which is uh, a large percentage of the cases, apparently. Um, and if that happened, then you could see it shoehorning into an original meaning case uh, where, uh, uh, and indeed, I'll give you this, uh, 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 Romer versus Evans. Justice Scalia relies in his fervent uh, dissenting opinion on the 19th century Mormon cases. Uh, Reynolds versus United States upheld the criminalization of polygamy. Uh, that's still good law, by the way, though its reasoning has been utterly discredited. But he also relied on Davis versus Beeson uh, and some other cases where the federal government said, if you believe or preach polygamy, we're going to take away your right to vote. We're not going to allow you to serve on juries. And in another case that Justice Scalia carefully did not cite, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the federal government confiscated LDS property. In my opinion, these cases are thoroughly wrongly decided based upon the original meaning of the Equal Protection Clause, if not the original meaning of the Free Exercise Clause, et cetera, et cetera. So I have nice things to say about the rights of polygamous to a certain extent, but I think that John Stuart Mill had it right. Uh, yes, right here. Hi, uh, Stanley Cook, U.S. government, formerly Virginia Civil Rights Commission. Some people will argue that in Kennedy's homosexual same-sex marriage, he was 
reacting more on a perverted form of psychology than the law, in that he looked on people who opposed gay or homosexual marriage were really opposed to gays or homosexuals, much like someone who opposes a polygamy is against Muslims. So I throw that out for comment. Okay, well, I, I, I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze Justice Kennedy, but, but again, you can look at you know, the, the public meaning of the utterances that these people make. Um, and Justice Kennedy, in terms of his public utterances in Windsor, the oral argument and the opinion, and if, I was at the oral argument in Obergefell and, of course, the opinion itself. Uh, honestly, I do think he's responding more, to the extent he's responding at a psychological level, uh, I think he's responding to this, and this is a conundrum. Uh, Justice Kennedy loves religion. I, I have every reason to believe that he is very devout, and his vote in Dale and other cases suggests that he is not unvigilant in protecting the right of religious minor minorities. But what, what moved Justice Kennedy, and I will submit what moved America, uh, was the fact that plaintiffs in this case, like April DeBoer and Jane Rouse, uh, are a lesbian couple committed since 1997 who are today raising five children, at least two of which would be dead today if these nurses in Detroit had literally not saved their lives through care, giving, self-sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what moved Justice Kennedy is if you deny these couples, now this is not all couples, but it's a lot of them, if you deny these couples the legal protections of marriage and all that goes with that, then you are, are actually hurting the children. So Justice Kennedy saw children on both sides of that issue and the tangible children that I think genuinely moved him. Vice President Biden, same thing, uh, were the children that were being raised by these lesbian and gay couples. We've got time for just two more questions and uh, very short answers. Right up here, first of all, and then over there. Uh, Michael Nowacki, and I live in your home state uh, and live in New Canaan, Connecticut, and a member of the New Canaan Taxpayers Association, LLC. A uh, question for you in regards to uh, the divorces that will inevitably come and what the impact on the family court systems will be, in your opinion, in a state like Connecticut, where there is all already uh, large allegations of corruption in the family court system with guardian ad litems and attorneys for the minor children appointed, and how much more complicated is the family law system going to become in our country uh, with the incidence of divorce in traditional families? Well, I, I, I agree. I, I live in Connecticut. It's one of the highest taxing jurisdictions I know of. Uh, and I think it will add to the burdens of the court system to a certain extent. Uh, there's every reason to believe that lesbian and gay couples who get married will be lesbian and gay couples who also get divorced. Uh, but I think their situations will be very similar to the situations of straight couples. The main difference will be, I'll assert, uh, that uh, gay male couples will be less likely to have children. Some do, but less likely than lesbian couples. And divorces are usually much more complicated if there are children involved. So the lesbian couples that pulled at the heartstrings of Justice Kennedy are also going to create these complicated divorces. But that, sir, is the price of procreation. Okay, right up here, please. I'll be, I'll be very, very brief. Um, Andrew Kloster with the Heritage Foundation. First, very brief comment. I, I, I see a lot of 
anti uh, polyamory uh, animus in the room, and I, I do find that a little bit uh, telling. Uh, this evidence of harm, it's not real evidence. Um, my question is this, though: What point uh, in a Supreme Court decision does the reasoning, uh, you know, Professor Eskridge, you talked about the the the, um, the Mormon cases, for example? But I've heard some on the on the left and the libertarian left talking about. I really wish there had been a clear equal protection decision in Obergefell. So, at what point does the reasoning in a Supreme Court case become so bad that a person who really is faithfully looking towards the law has to oppose the judgment? Well, that's a good question. I, I would say Reynolds versus United States is the best example. And please don't lump me in with the anti-polyamory. I'm the one who mentioned and denounced the Supreme Court's persecution here. And now I'm going to denounce Reynolds. It is still good law, sir. But every bit of the reasoning, I think, is corrupt. It's racist reasoning to the very core. Um, and so your question, though, is a serious one. Uh, to what extent? Uh, well, to be very blunt, as a law professor, uh, very few Americans could tell you today, this is a recent decision, uh, if you took a poll of educated Americans, uh, very few Americans could tell you what the reasoning was in Obergefell. Uh, and I think Chief Justice Roberts realized that in his... Either, <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and even, even Americans sitting here in this room, you know, after, an ex after a learned exegesis, okay? Uh, but here's a punchline. This is this idea of the pluralist constitution. The pluralist constitution, which is a constitution for all Americans and not just the policy wonks and the legal scholars, uh, is one where they are very interested in how are you accommodating the various groups. And I think most Americans, most LGBT Americans and supporters and whatnot, were celebrated, even if they disagreed with the reasoning. And you notice even Roger, Roger and I, we were... We wanted the equal protection rationale, but we still celebrated it. Roger and I were dancing the day afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. Not together. No. Uh, okay. My, my, uh, wife, my wife would have objected to that. Uh, and, and here's the other thing I would say about equality, because I, I, I do think uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg agrees with me. I bet Sotomayor agrees with me. I, I know Roger does. I know Ilya does, et cetera. I think it would have been a much stronger opinion if it had been an equal protection opinion, because it would have connected commitments not just 1868, commitments going back to the 17th and 18th century in the colonies and early, in early America to what was ratified in a super way in 1868, to presidents of the court interpreting that, including Romer versus Evans, then to this monumental thing. And I think that would have been really good. But equality is a process, not a holding. And I think what, America, what Americans generally are going to be interested in is what the Supreme Court does next as it, as it uh, uh, gives teeth. You know, the Kim Davis, it, no appeal there. That was a Supreme Court action. But in other cases, like a Dale Redivivus kind of case, the Supreme Court probably will protect religious liberty. And uh, Justice Thomas, of course, moved very much in the direction of equal protection, but he couldn't buy the conclusion that followed from the faithful adherence to equal protection. And so uh, we got 80% of the right reasoning from him, even if we got the right result from uh, Kennedy. So it goes at the court. That's why we exist here, to try to keep them on the straight and narrow, and it's more than a full-time job. Well, we are going to move directly into our next panel, so don't uh, 
uh, go anywhere. And let's have a good round of applause for our panelists. Here.